You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Well, we got some good news out of Kansas, of all places. That good news came last week. A week. It's an eternity now. All weeks have been officially reclassified as eternities since November of 2016. The news out of Kansas happened so long ago that Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson were still together. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema were still blocking Joe Biden's agenda in the Senate. And that poor woman on Reddit had yet to find the jar under the sink where her husband was saving his semen and yet to learn what her husband had been doing with his semen throughout their marriage. You know, if someone were to run for president and her only campaign promise was to make a week a week again, I would vote for that person. Anyway, to quickly recap, last Tuesday, voters in Kansas rejected a constitutional amendment that would have made it possible for the Republicans who dominate the Kansas state legislature to ban abortion, which they can't currently do because the Kansas state constitution, according to the Kansas state Supreme Court, guarantees the right to bodily autonomy and guarantees it not just to men, but to women too, which seems crazy. Republicans thought this was a slam dunk. Put what amounts to a ban on abortion on the ballot in a red state, put it on a ballot in August during a primary election when only Republicans are up and when older people and Republicans are much more likely to vote and watch your abortion ban get approved. But Kansas voters rejected it. And they didn't just reject it, they stomped it. In a blood red state that Donald fucking Trump won by 17 points in 2020, 60% of Kansas voters in 2022 said no to banning abortion. A landslide for choice in Kansas. In addition to what that means for the women of Kansas, they can still terminate a pregnancy. Women living in states around Kansas where abortion is already banned, women in Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, Texas technically doesn't border Kansas, but it's right under that skinny part of Oklahoma. All those women living in all those states. They're still going to have to travel to get medical abortions when they need them, but not as far as they would have had to travel if Kansas had banned abortion too. That's not how things should be. Abortion should be legal and accessible everywhere for women who need abortions, for trans men and non-binary folks too. But it is a big win. And it's a big win that I didn't see coming. I got a little grief. I got a few emails from annoyed listeners and readers in Kansas who were upset that I hadn't even mentioned the upcoming vote in Kansas in the run-up to it. Plenty of time to pick apart how to build a sex room on Netflix and not a word about abortion rights in Kansas. Well, I don't want to be defensive, but in my defense, I wasn't talking about it for the same reason Emily Bazelon says she wasn't talking about it on the Slate Political Gab Fest. I mean, I confess I was very surprised by this vote. I had simply looked at the fact that there were twice as many um, registered Republicans in Kansas as Democrats and assumed that this measure would pass. I thought it was hopeless. I thought it was going to pass. I was wrong. All credit goes to the organizations and individuals on the ground in Kansas who achieved this victory without much 
support from the podcasters. The Kansas City Star has a great write-up on how they did it. Headline, abortion rights advocates, one big in Kansas. How did they do it? New York Times, LA Times also have big write-ups about how they did it. They're worth your time. Go read them. Lots of lessons in there for pro-choice activists all over the country. But yeah, I should have said something. I should have weighed in. My apologies to listeners in Kansas that I'm only weighing in on this now. Which makes me think of something else I probably should have weighed in on by now already too. Birthing people, pregnant people, people who need abortions. The push by some on the left to use inclusive language. The well-intentioned push to use inclusive language when talking about abortion rights. Which means, according to some people, avoiding, in reference to abortion, the word women. Michelle Goldberg was on Ezra Klein's podcast a few weeks ago. She was on my Sex and Politics podcast recently. But Michelle Goldberg said something on Ezra's show that really stuck with me. I mean, I can tell you that most women I know over 40 seethe at the word women being taken out of reproductive rights activism. I mean... I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people about this who are just so angry about it um, because it feels to them like feminism has become another place where cisgender women are supposed to defer. But there is a sense, I think, among a lot of older women that if you can't explain the way that abortion bans are rooted in misogyny, you know, that they're rooted in the kind of fundamental desire to control women's reproduction, then it becomes very difficult to organize, right? Like some people oppress other people on the basis of their reproduction is just not really an accurate way, I think, of describing centuries of patriarchy. One of those women out there seething, one of those women over 40, Bette Midler, who got dragged all over Twitter for saying this a couple of weeks ago. Women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators and even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you. It's confusing who the they's are in Bette Midler's tweet. The people stripping women of their rights, of their bodily autonomy, are not the same people out there urging all of us to avoid using the word woman in reference to abortion rights. And they so urge us because not everyone who needs an abortion is a woman. The they stripping women of their rights, Republicans. The they calling women birthing people, not Republicans. You know, I watched the ads that the group Kansans for Constitutional Freedom put out, the advertising campaign that racked up that 60-40 win on abortion rights in Kansas, and the word woman was all over them, not erased, centered. There's a lot of talk on the left about white women and how white women vote, and white women tend to vote Republican. Not all white women, but a majority of white women. And it seems to me if there's a word or a way of putting something that causes white women, even lefty white women like Bette Midler, to seethe, maybe hammering away at that term or insisting that everyone use that term and only that term, maybe it's not good politics. 
I know some Republicans, women and otherwise, and the one thing every Republican I know has in common is that they are constantly scanning the horizon, searching for any excuse to vote Republican. Older women, more likely to vote. Older white women, more likely to vote Republican. Seems to me, politically, at this moment, we don't want to hand them an excuse to vote Republican by insisting or even suggesting that using the term woman in reference to abortion is hateful. Now, we can and we should use inclusive language. I do. Actually, I just did. I say pregnant women all the time. I've done a lot of talking on the show about abortion for years, not just lately, but a lot more lately. A lot of intros on the subject of choice and abortion and Roe and Dobbs, a lot of guests on the show talking about abortion. I say pregnant women. I say women who need abortions. I talk about women's rights. I talk about mothers. Most women who get abortions are already mothers. But I don't just say women. I add once in a while and other people who need abortions, trans men, non-binary, AFABs, agender folks. It's a conscious choice on my part. I did it, like I said, a couple of minutes ago in this intro. I was talking about the women of Kansas, the women living in nearby states. And then I said, quoting myself, abortion should be legal and accessible everywhere for women who need abortions and for trans men and non-binary folks. I think that's inclusive language. I'm pro-inclusion. I'm anti-distortion. And I think eliminating the word women, only using pregnant people, as a guest did on this late political gab fest last week, as reporters and hosts do on NPR constantly, doesn't include, it distorts. The people who are trying to ban abortion, they aren't after trans men or non-binary folks. They don't like trans men or non-binary folks or cis gays or immigrants or really anyone else who doesn't look just like them. The list of people the right doesn't like goes on and on, but they've been fighting abortion rights forever since long before they found out what a trans man was or a non-binary AFAB was. The fight against reproductive choice has always been about controlling women. It's the misogyny, stupid. And they will be delighted. Republican assholes will be delighted if abortion bans also harm some of the trans men and non-binary folks that they just found out about. But women are the target, and we need to use language that makes that clear. And we can, and we can do it without being exclusionary. We can and we should include. We can't and we shouldn't do the right wing the favor of obscuring their motive. They aren't attacking people, pregnant or otherwise, when they attack reproductive freedom. They're attacking women. And I know that we on the left can keep the focus on the real targets of one discriminatory law or a long discriminatory campaign because we're already doing it. Voter suppression, removing polling places for minority areas, making it harder for black people to vote, passing voter ID laws, and then making it harder for voters to get IDs. We have no problem talking about these laws, these efforts, these voter suppression campaigns as explicitly racist the target african-american voters who overwhelmingly vote democratic but you know what some white people don't have id some white people live in areas where polling places have been yanked shut down to prevent black people from voting if every time we talked about voter suppression efforts and called them anti-black and racist some lefty 
burst through the wall like the Kool-Aid man and said, you can't call these laws racist. You can't say black voters are the target because some white people aren't going to be able to vote too. Even though that Kool-Aid man lefty jerk would be technically right, he would be missing the point. So yeah, let's include, but let's not distort. Let's use inclusive language, but let's be strategic and proportionate. And let's be political because this is a political war because those women Goldberg was talking about all those seething women over 40 who seethe when they hear the phrase pregnant people, which no woman in Kansas heard in the run up to last week's vote. We need them. We need as many of their votes as we can get. And it would therefore then be politically savvy of us to be careful about when we use language that alienates those voters that we need. We're moving away from gendered language. I'm all for moving away from gendered language, but we're not going to be past it by November of this year or November of 2024. All right, coming up on today's show on the Micro and Magnum Savage Lovecasts, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and Dr. Carlton Thomas is back to answer some Follow-up questions from our listeners about the monkeypox vaccine. And on the Magnum this week, Ellen Fournay, best-selling author of Marbles, joins me to talk about being bipolar, whether bipolar is a burden, and when a bipolar person should disclose their condition to a new partner. And also for Magnum subs this week, we're putting out a new sex and politics podcast. Author and historian Gareth Russell joins me to talk about his biography of Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife. It's a 500-year-old story with a lot of sex, a lot of politics, and some surprisingly contemporary themes. That's Sex and Politics, a bonus podcast we do for our Magnum subs. If you're not already a Magnum sub, you can become one today at savage.love, where you can also read my sex advice column, Savage Love. Just go to savage.love slash savage love for savage love. All right, let's get to the show. Hey Dan, 50-something, hetero, cis male, living in the Midwest, in an ethically non-monogamous relationship, which I've been in for about five years now. Both me and my fiancé have been in lifestyle for about six years, so we're each in about a year before we met. And being in lifestyle, being a swinger, is a lifelong dream of mine. I am so excited that I made it here finally <laughs> something I've wanted my whole life and it's uh, finally come true and I'm just having the time of my life both as a single and now as part of a couple it's been amazing and so I just want to tell everybody <laughs> and uh, just I want to normalize it make it acceptable uh, so much so that you know I grew up in the south in a fairly very conservative family 12 years of Catholic school I was an altar boy but in any case, like right after I met my fiance, I was going back home and I was going to tell my mom because I just wanted to share with her. It's something awesome to me. I wanted to try to normalize it. She already knows I'm an atheist and she accepts and loves me for that. So <laughs> I think she would have been fine with it eventually or I could have smoothed it over. But when I told my fiance that I had almost told my mom, she was aghast and just couldn't believe it. And, you know, I asked her why, you know, what's the big deal? And she made a good point that it's, you know, now my mom, my conservative mom, is going to think of her just about sex. And it's going to be really hard for her to have a, quote, normal relationship with my mom. And I do understand that. And I did. And so I didn't tell my mom. 
I kept it. Um, one of my sisters knows, actually both of them know now, um, and they're fine with it. But now, fast forward a few years later, and my kids do know. She also didn't want to tell the kids, uh, which again, I understood, but uh, my kids are older, and my ex was using, their mom was using our lifestyle in some custody battles we were having. And she had found, you know, some receipt when they were going through. She had a very in-depth lawyer that figured out that we had been on a swinger cruise and somehow she was going to try to use that. So I used that as an opportunity to, you know, tell my fiance, hey, you know, I need to get ahead of this. I can't let her use this in court and have it come out and, you know, some other way that the kids have some judge or, you know, something leaked that they know about this. So, you know, I need to tell them. And she understood. And I did. And the kids were perfectly fine. They didn't even know. They actually kind of thought it sucked that mom was uh, using this, trying to use this against me, but they felt no differently about Susie. So now we are planning to get married in uh, Jamaica. And it's just going to be a small wedding with my kids and then some other friends of ours. And so now I want to let them know how we met this other couple that, you know, it was a swinger event and um, that we will probably go over to Hito because they're going to stay with us a couple days and then they're going to go over to the Hito Swinger Resort. So I want to be able to tell my kids that that's where they're going and that we're going to go over and see them so they understand. Um, But my fiance is very hesitant about this. She can't quite articulate it or I can't understand it at least. You know, it's not about her and her reputation this time. But I think she just thinks that it's just too much unnecessary information. But again, I just really want to normalize this for everybody. My kids are fine and already accepting that we're in there. Um, and I just want to expand that. And uh, But I don't know what to do. Does she, does she have a point here? Is, is me just telling them we met these swingers and we're going over to a swinger resort? Is that too much? Remember Jerry Falwell Jr.? He was the president of the of Liberty University, which is a rapidly fundamentalist Christian university. He was one of the first big dudes in the evangelical right-wing Christian movement to endorse Donald fucking Trump. And famously, he, you know, got fucked out of Liberty University, literally fucked out of Liberty University out of his gig at the college that his shitty father, the Reverend Jerry Falwell, founded because he and his wife were in some sort of hot wife cuckold relationship. They were fucking the pool boy. The pool boy was fucking Jerry Falwell Jr.'s wife in front of him. And this didn't come as an enormous surprise because for a couple of years up to him getting caught, him getting outed, the pool boy going to the media, Falwell had been posting really weird things. Weird for, not for me, not for other people, but weird for the president of an evangelical university on Instagram that were sexual, that were kind of overtly sexual, that were, he was sharing, he was oversharing. It was TMI. And that's what tripped him up in the end was all that TMI. Now you are not the president of an evangelical university. This probably isn't going to get you in trouble, your propensity to overshare. But let's first think about why people in their 50s start doing this. I think there's this propensity in older folks to start oversharing about their sex lives. And we, and I'm including myself in this, this impulse to overshare because when you get into your 50s, you are perceived as less sexual, less sexually desirable, as having less sexual agency, fewer sexual opportunities. You're kind of erased. And there is this 
you know, raging against the dying of the lust desire to say, no, 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 I'm still in this. I'm still, I still have agency. I'm still desirable. I think that's what Jerry Falwell Jr. was doing. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, people see you as sexual. They see you as desirable. They see you as in your sexual prime. You don't have to assert your desirability. You don't have to assert that you're getting it. 50s, 60s, 70s? Yeah, you kind of have to assert it. And people do. And that's what tripped Jerry Falwell Jr. up, that he was asserting that when he needed to shut the fuck up and not draw suspicion in the way that he did and in a way that eventually exploded his life. Now, again, you are not the president of an evangelical university. This probably won't get you in trouble at work. You won't lose your job, your position, your racket, right? The grift that you were engaged in for 30 fucking years like Jerry Falwell Jr. But you're going to fuck up your relationship with your fiance, you're going to normalize your way right out of this relationship if you can't listen to your fiance who is telling you to shut the fuck up. She doesn't want this shared. And I feel a little hypocritical because, you know, Terry and I are out of be, being non-monogamous, monogamish, and now polyamorous. But we did that together. I didn't run and tell my mom something that Terry wasn't comfortable with my mom knowing about us, right? You can't impose this unilaterally on your wife-to-be. If she wishes to be perceived as socially monogamous in relationships with, you know, your parents, or I guess it's too late, that ship has sailed with your kids, that's her right. And you have to respect her comfort level. And dude, what are you thinking? There's a couple coming to your wedding and you want to tell your kids, oh, by the way, we're going to be fucking them later after you guys fly home to your mom. We're going to the swingers. We're going to fuck. Why would you tell them that? Your kids, your parents, you run them on a need to know basis. They need to know the outline. They don't need to know the itinerary. They don't need to know who you're about to fuck. They know that you're not monogamous. You don't have to worry about that being leveraged against you in court or your one of your kids getting the impression that, you know, your wife's being a little too friendly with some dude. And then she's worried that your wife is cheating on you. And that's a secret that she has to keep, protect you from to save your second marriage. They know, they know the outline. That's all they need to know. And it's all your wife to be is comfortable with them knowing you normalize being gay by being out, right? You normalize poly open non-monogamous relationships by being out about them. And more and more people in open relationships are out about them. More and more straight people. It used to be that most straight people didn't know they knew anyone who was in an open relationship. They only heard about their friends who had three ways or had open relationships when they got divorced. And so there was this association between openness or three ways or swinging. And that's, you know, that's going to be the end. That's going to destroy everything because straight people only found out that their straight friends had had a three-way when their straight friends were in court getting a divorce. Less common today. The burden isn't entirely on your shoulders. More and more straight couples are out. And the important people for you to be out to, peers. Not your fucking kids. Not necessarily your fucking mother. Your peers. So, yeah, this is TMI. The kids don't need to know who you're fucking, when you're fucking them. That isn't normalizing openness or non-monogamy that's oversharing and that's i'm sorry 
just kind of being a creep. Everyone in my life, my family members, know that I'm gay. And they know that Terry and I are an open relationship. I don't ring up my aunt when we're about to have a four-way, which we're not doing right now because of the monkey box, and let her know to normalize gay and open. She knows and is fine with it. So shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Don't brag to your kids. You are a man in his 50s. You're sexually desirable. You have an awesome, wonderful sex life with your fiancé. We all believe you. We see you. I see you. Leave your kids the fuck out of it. And mazel tov from me and Nancy on your wedding. Hi, Dan and Nancy and the youth. I was just wondering, is it a thing for quote-unquote straight females to be attracted to gay porn or gay portrayal of relationships? I'm not sure why I'm so into it. Men, men, or women, women. Regardless, there's just something about it that is so sexy. I didn't know anyone still had a hang-up about this. I remember this question coming up constantly three decades ago when I started writing Savage Love, my advice column. Lesbians would write in who felt weird about the fact that they watched exclusively porn uh, that was gay, that was two dudes. And sometimes, you know, women would write in, straight women write in, and they were a little freaked out that they only watched gay dude porn as well, or lesbian porn. And occasionally I'd hear from a gay guy who wrote in about how he liked to watch straight porn and what did that mean? He felt weird about it. You know who I never heard from? Straight guys who had any conflict about watching acres of lesbian porn. And it's obvious why a straight guy might like lesbian porn. There's two of what he wants, and there is that kind of straight guy's subconscious narrative or conscious narrative that what those two really want and really need and really lack right now is a dick. And so I can walk into that scene in my imagination and be the missing piece literally and be welcomed and complete the picture. But straight guys don't have any conflict about that. You shouldn't have any conflict about this. You like what you like. This speaks to some part of your erotic subconscious. I think it's easy to flip whatever it is this is speaking to you in your erotic subconscious into your erotic consciousness, there's something about non-heterosexual sex that even as a heterosexual person arouses you. Maybe it's seeing the two dicks. Maybe it's seeing a guy get from another guy what you usually get from another guy. Maybe it frees you from the sense of sort of gendered roles, watching a, a guy get fucked in a way that watching a woman get fucked doesn't. There's all sorts of rationalizations that you can retroactively construct here to get yourself to a place where you can unselfconsciously enjoy the porn that you enjoy, or you can cut out the middle, Dan, as you already kind of have and just enjoy the porn you're enjoying. It turns you on cause it turns you on and that's fine. Tap into your inner straight guy and just feel entitled to the porn that turns you on for reasons. And I think it's really interesting that I used to get this question all the time from gay guys and lesbians and straight women, never from straight guys. And I almost never get this question anymore. Hearing your question today was like, oh yeah, I remember this one. I think that says something about uh, maybe, you know, some progress that we've managed to make around people's interests, desires, and the legitimacy of their interests and desires. And we should highlight whatever progress we're making because there's so uh, much regress going on out there right now. This is a small thing, but it's a thing.
Hey Dan, mid-twenties, straight, cis female from the Midwest. My relationship with my boyfriend is the healthiest relationship I've ever been in, and I really love him. My question is what, about whether my boyfriend being so lax about infrequent sex is normal. We've been dating for a year, and he's in his early 30s. When we first started dating to ease the awkward stage, I'd get pretty drunk before we would do anything or have sex, and he would usually too. I remember when we first started dating thinking that even when we did have drunk sex, it was kind of infrequent, probably being like every couple of weeks. But we didn't live together, so I thought it was pretty normal. The thing that wasn't normal to me was him being okay with this. Like the guys that I've been with in the past always expected or wanted at least to do something pretty much every day. Fast forward over the next year to now, and I've quit drinking. Though we're finally having sober sex, it's still only once a week at most, and we can usually go two or three weeks without having sex. Though I'm actually fine with this because I have a fairly low sex drive to begin with, I feel like I'm doing something wrong, and it's all my fault that we don't have sex a lot, even though neither of us are doing the initiating. I've brought this up, and have been honest with my boyfriend and he says he's totally fine with how often we do it and he doesn't sit there and count the days. Even with his reassurance that he's happy, I still work myself up almost every night over whether we are or aren't going to have sex. Personally, I feel awkward with initiating, so that's why I don't do it often and truthfully, half the time, I don't even want to have sex. I don't know why he doesn't initiate so I guess I could ask him that. I've been cheated on in the past, and I think that's probably where a lot of this anxiety is coming from. My current boyfriend, though, has never given me a reason to worry or to not trust him. Should I just take his word that he's fine with our cadence and stop worrying about it? And do you have any recommendations on how I can stop worrying about it? So you were in relationships in the past where there was an imbalance in libido, where you're previous boyfriends wanted sex more often than you did. And I assume attempted to initiate regularly and you had to shut them down. And that can be awkward and awful. That can also be a bit of a power trip. Do you miss that at all? I would, you know, if I was going to dig deep with you, ask you to think about that question. Was there something about your past relationships where they wanted it daily and you wanted it once a week and you shut them down all the time and it doesn't sound like you took any sadistic joy in that or really that dynamic wasn't pleasing to you. But maybe on some level you kind of missed the affirmation that came packaged with that boyfriend who wanted it from you more often than you wanted it. And now you're with somebody who only wants it as often as you do and you miss – being desired as intensely as your past boyfriends desired you, even if you didn't want to go through with having sex with them as often as they wanted to have sex with you. If none of that is going on, and like I said, I didn't really pick that up in your tone or your voice or anything that you said. If none of that is going on, take the yes for an answer. Yahtzee, you found a guy who wants sex about as often as you want sex and is fine with being the initiator and you need to stop stressing yourself out going to bed every night about whether or not sex is going to happen. That seems like it may be an anxiety that's lingering in your psyche because you were in relationships before where every night when you went to bed with your past boyfriends, there was a chance that they were going to initiate sex or a likelihood that they were. And maybe you hated having to shut it down. Maybe you know it led to a lot of conflict and fights and feelings of inadequacy. And there's just this anxiousness that took root in you around bed slash sex time. And what you have to do now is just 
believe the man that you're with now when he tells you that once a week or once, you know, it doesn't happen for three weeks, he's fine and let go of the anxiety. And you'll have an easier time letting go of that anxiety about past boyfriends and what bedtime meant if you wrap it around their necks and, you know, add cement shoes and throw them in the river. That anxiety isn't about your current boyfriend. That anxiety is about the boyfriends who are now out of your life. But, you know, sometimes you want to be invited to parties you'd rather not go to, but you want the invitation. You want to be wanted as a guest. And that can happen with sex too. Sometimes you want to be wanted even if you don't want to do it, but you want to feel desired. And if that's the problem here, maybe you and your boyfriend can identify that and figure out a way to thread that through your relationship without it always having to be sexual or resulting in sexual activity. Just some affirmation from him that he does desire you. And boy, when you two fuck on Saturday morning or fuck in a couple of weeks, it's going to be awesome. Get that affirmation. It might help even if it isn't the problem. Hi, Dana and all. I'm calling from Georgia with a question about uh, actually my relationship with my best friend. The situation is that we've been friends for, I don't know, like almost 30 years, very close, solid relationship. And one of, we're very different, but one of the things we share is all of our past relationships have been with men who have substance use disorder. So problematic pot and alcohol usage, you know, now she is in a new relationship. She got divorced in February, the weekend she got divorced, she went out to have some fun with a girlfriend. They went out of town. She had a one night stand, hooked up with a guy, caught feelings. They both caught feelings for each other. And now, you know, fast forward here in July, they're still together. You know, it's a, it's a thing. Of course, the thing is, is he is a chronic daily pot smoker and a moderate drinker. And so I have told her that she can't talk to me about him because I don't really have nice things to say about that because I think it's really dangerous. And I do see a fair amount of warning signs about this being the same relationship pattern that's been problematic for her in the past. He is a big upgrade from her ex-husband who is not hard to get an upgrade from. Like her ex was a pretty big ass. So to her, it feels very amazing. And I do see how it's been healing and positive for her, but also very problematic. And I, it's hard for me to listen to it and support her without feeling like I'm encouraging it. And I, it's not something that I, I feel authentic and encouraging. So yeah, I told her, you can't talk to me about him and she understands and she gets it. And we're pretty good. Although sometimes she comes at me with like, don't just, can you just love me and, and trust me? And then, you know, I tell her, I do, I do love and trust you, you know, and she knows I support her a thousand percent, whether or not I support this relationship or not. So my question for you is, am I being a bitchy friend by drawing this boundary and saying, I don't want to engage with you in this part of your life, which makes me sad, but like, also I feel kind of comfortable with. And two, am I being a prude about the pot thing? I mean, I smoke weed sometimes. Like, I think it can be really helpful. I, you know, I appreciate its effects in a lot of ways. But given, like, my history, it's been a firm line I've had to draw that I cannot date anybody who has substance use disorder or who is uh, not sober for the daylight hours, you know, like, who's not, who's 
high from the time they get up till the time they go to bed, just because it's, it's too triggering for me. It's too bad. I've had too many bad experiences with men living that lifestyle. So there's something that this guy that your best friend is dating now has in common with other guys that you and your best friend have had bad experiences with. He's a daily chronic pot smoker. That's the only similarity you cite. You don't say that he's emotionally abusive. You don't say that he's unemployed or unemployable. You don't say that he's, uh, I don't know, you, you cite nothing else, just the pot smoking. And you're a pot smoker yourself, and I'm a bit of a pot smoker or pot consumer, edibler. And it's a little hard for me to land in your corner here. I think you need to give this guy a chance. It's only been six months. Not everybody who drinks has a drinking problem. Not even everyone who drinks has a couple of drinks daily. That's considered moderate drinking. I almost never have a drink. I don't like alcohol. But there are sometimes when I do have a half an edible a day and I don't think that I'm a person that your best friend, if your best friend was a hot dude, shouldn't be dating. But you have met this guy. I haven't met this guy. Maybe there are other redder green flags that are flapping in the wind here and you just didn't think to list them. Although I have to assume that if there are other resemblances to the shitty guys your best friend had been with in the past or recently divorced, that you would have enumerated them or listed them for me. So I worry that you're using pot and alcohol use as a marker here of shitty human being and maybe that's true and it's fine. You know, there are people out there who are sober or who have had terrible experiences with people who use drugs and alcohol and make a decision for themselves that that's a deal breaker. Any drug or alcohol use is a deal breaker. And I think that is a perfectly legitimate boundary for a person to set, but it's not a boundary that you can set for a person. It's not a boundary that you can impose on your best friend. You do get to, you know, decide what you're going to engage with your best friend about. And you can tell your best friend that you have reservations about this guy, that you think his pot and alcohol use is a little problematic and you're just dubious about this relationship. And that's often what we rely on our friends for, is to check us at the beginning of a relationship when we may be getting carried away. That new relationship energy, the infatuation stage, you know, we need friends sometimes to point out the red flags for us because love is blind and we can't see them. But a red flag isn't always evidence that the red army is coming in behind it. Sometimes a red flag is a false flag. A red flag says, hey, be careful, scrutinize this, think about this, examine this. What are we doing here? Who is this person? And is this evidence of some fatal flaw? And you as the best friend, get in there, point it out. Listen to her when she talks about him. Observe them when they're together. And if you're convinced that he is bad for your best friend, you can and should say that. You can also say to somebody, you know what? You know how I feel. And you know I don't think this relationship is right for you. We've had the arguments. We've had the fights. I love you. I'm not going to argue with you about this anymore or fight with you about this anymore. You do you. You date who you want to date. You can also say, I don't want to hang out with this person, so I'm not going to see you together with them. 
and then be there for your friend. If it falls apart, if it turns out that you're right, but if it turns out that you're wrong and this guy is using pot the way some people use antidepressants, it's how he self-regulates and self-medicates, but he's a functioning human being and not an asshole and good for your friend, you may have to admit some point down the road that you were wrong about him. Hey, Dan. Just had a kind of quick follow-up on the most recent episode where you talked to the butt doctor. So kind of trying to figure out, like, uh, I know you've got a lot of things as far as what we can do right now to stop the spread. What might be kind of a follow-up for that for people that are lucky enough to get the vaccine? What should they kind of uh, be able to look forward to once they do their part? I feel like there's been some confusion about how protected you are off of one shot versus the two shot regimen. And uh, would just love to kind of know a little bit more from someone that is more sex positive, as opposed to some of the stuff out there that basically just says abstinence only forever is the way to go. So just curious to kind of see if there's something that we can look forward to maybe in the future. I know right now it's not looking so great, but I know that after uh, all this time with COVID and having to cut back, and just being worried in general, like it, it started to kind of feel nice to be a little more flexible in what we were doing as a community and just would be nice to have something to look forward to again, as opposed to constant depression uh, and things just kind of getting worse. Well, we're going to bring back the butt doctor. Dr. Carlton Thomas is a Mayo Clinic trained gay gastroenterologist who practices in San Diego, became gamous on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Carlton, where he provides health information to gay by men and also men who have sex with men. Dr. Carlton, aka butt doctor, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Dan. So thank you so much for the convo we had before. Let's just jump into this, uh, these follow-up questions. There's a two-shot vaccine for monkeypox. For people who are lucky enough to get the vaccine, what can they look forward to? How protected are you after one shot, after two shot? And can people who've gotten both their shots still get monkeypox? Great question. Right now, we don't know. To be honest, there's not a whole lot of data out there in this current situation to prove anything. With all the thousands of men who've been infected and thousands of men who've been immunized, we don't know where antibody levels are on anybody. There are older studies that we're basing things off of, though. There's one from 2009 that's cited in the uh, i-base.org article on monkeypox that says in H it separates it out between HIV positive and HIV negative individuals that 7 to 14 days after shot one, there's a 29% coverage 28 days after uh, shot one, there is a 67% coverage for HIV positive folks and 83% for HIV negative. Now, granted, this is an old study from 2009. Who knows how well those people were controlled on their HIV? Who knows? Well, what, what, what does coverage mean? Well, coverage, means, coverage means that they have a sufficient enough level of antibodies that we uh, assume that they'll be protected against infection. So gay men who are out there getting the vaccine shouldn't be telling themselves, hey, I got the vaccine. Let's go back to the sex party right now. Right. right. It, it takes some time, takes some weeks to get up to, and, and you're not at a fully protected level. It's not 100% immune. Nothing is 100%. There is no vaccine that is 100%. So now, if it, again, you said, said shot one, shot two. This is technically guided by the FDA as a two-shot series. 
two weeks after the second shot, there is a 98% coverage uh, in antibody levels. So I think we have to stratify this out as good, better, best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking with higher level officials, it sounds like at two weeks after your first shot, you have good, robust antibody formation. But it's better if you wait to three weeks. So the longer you wait, the more, the more antibody levels you have. The best case scenario is two weeks after that second shot where you have a really, really high level of immunity. A lot of us were told that it's a two-shot regimen for the monkeypox vaccine, but now some people are hearing that they can only get or only need to get one shot. Why is that? There's a couple of reasons. There is some data from 2019 uh, in a study about the same size of the small study that I quoted earlier that states that there is a pretty robust immune response at about two weeks. To the one shot. To the one shot. So with there being such limited data out there and limited vaccine availability, in order to get more people some protection, we're going with one shot giving good protection for as many people as possible. And to get so, more people vaccinated. It makes sense. Partly vaccinated. It makes sense. Okay, so just to be clear, you know, we we both decided we would play daddy the last time we talked and just tell people to knock it off for a bit. We're not calling for abstinence only forever. We're not calling, both of us are gay men, we're not calling for the end of gay sex here. Oh, absolutely. But there are new guidelines out from the CDC and WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, and the reaction from some segments of the gay community would make you think that the CDC was calling for the end of gay sex. They released a statement saying, uh, I think it was WHO uh, and CDC released two statements very similar saying that gay men and bi men and men who have sex with men should temporarily consider limiting their number of sex partners. You would think that the guidelines based on some of the reactions from WHO were gay men should cut off their dicks. Right. Right. And I think you and I are more extreme. We're like, hey, don't waffle about it. Just don't do it right now. You know, don't, you know, limit, definitely limit your sex partners. Don't consider limiting your sex partners. You got to be more forthright and forceful with with this information. Because if you give anybody waffle room, they'll be like, well, I considered it and I'm screwing around anyway. <laughs> that, that That's the weasel word. It's a weasel word. Gay men should consider. Right. Possibly. Maybe temporarily limiting the number of sex. No, right now, actually two months ago, gay men should have and should have been told by health officials to limit their number of sex partners. This was advice that gay men gave each other at the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic when we were getting no health messages from the authorities. Gay community organizations, scrappy little community organizations founded in men's living rooms, put out flyers that said – You should have more sex with fewer people. That was the advice gay men gave each other at the beginning of HIV AIDS. That is the advice that we should be getting now and should have gotten from health officials immediately in May when we saw this train coming down the track. Right, exactly. The messaging has to be more clear. And we also, health officials, like like you mentioned last time about being homophobic versus homophilic, there is a level of fear of being canceled. Uh, just by simply giving information. But, mm-hmm. you know, we have to own certain things in our community. I mean, I'm you and I are the most sex positive people out there, I think, when it comes to the Internet. But even we recognize that right now we need to own what is happening and we need to take steps to prevent uh, further damage in the community. Vaccination, waiting for that vaccine to kick in and being responsible during that period of time to make sure we minimize any sort of infections. 
Dr. Carlton Thomas, Mayo Clinic trained gay gastroenterologist who practices in San Diego. Follow him on TikTok and Instagram for constantly updating information about monkeypox, about where you can get vaccinated and other uh, health challenges gay by men face. You can find him on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Carlton. Hey, Dr. Carlton, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with me again. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Hey, Dan and Nancy and the rest. Uh, you folks have cleared up so many misconceptions and false info about herpes over the years, and we thank you for that. That being said, here's another herpes question for you. I'm a straight-ish male. I'm dating a woman who's married to a man. They practice ethical non-monogamy and uh, kitchen table poly. Her husband and I are on friendly terms. Uh, she's on birth control and has used condoms for most of her adult life. She recently proposed the idea of not using condoms, so all three of us went to get tested. Uh, the tests are all clear as we expected, except for her husband's test showed uh, antibodies for HSV-2, which was a total surprise for them. Uh, he's never experienced an outbreak or any symptoms. Uh, it's never showed up on a previous test. He hasn't been with any new partners since his last test. He can't even think of an unlikely scenario where he would have gotten it without realizing it. He's truly surprised. He's totally trustworthy and reliable, so that's not a factor here. I won't bother trying to summarize what our various doctors said, but we all got slightly different guidance that ended up with us being a little bit confused. The main question is, how risky or how safe is it for her and I to not use condoms, just between the two of us? And then if they decide as a married couple to also forego using condoms between the two of them, does that make it significantly more risky for me? Um, I assume so. And then the last thing is, uh, one of our doctors said that based on his history, it's reasonably safe as long as he watches out for outbreaks and that they're pretty easy to detect. And then you can just avoid sexual contact when that's happening. Again, like I said, he's never had an outbreak before, but is it possible to miss subtle symptoms or signs of an outbreak and maybe pass it unawares? Sure. Of course, it's possible that he could have an outbreak and miss the signs, miss the symptoms. But it seems to me that if he was likely to have that kind of subtle outbreak or was infectious pretty much ever, his wife would already have it. I assume that they haven't been using condoms. Leads me to believe that whatever you know, viral strain this man has, it's mild. His infection is very mild. He wasn't even aware he was infected. This is often the case with people who have herpes. Not always the case, often the case that it's, they don't even know they have herpes. That doesn't mean they can't pass it on. Now, he may, you know, if his immune system takes a hit, begin having outbreaks later in life, or he may never have outbreaks. There are drugs he can get on Valacyclovir that'll make his outbreaks, which already aren't happening ever, less likely to happen, space them farther apart, I guess, kick them off into different lifetimes. And that may provide some reassurance to, you know, his wife, some protection for his wife, um, and some reassurance for you if you and his wife do decide to go condom free. But there's no way, you know, there's no way to mitigate for all the risks here. There's no way to control for them, or uh, not control for them, you can control for them and you can mitigate them, certainly. So to mitigate the risk, he could go on valacyclovir. You and his wife, you and the woman that you're seeing, can keep using condoms with each other. If this were me, if this were my dick, 
I would probably be comfortable. I would definitely be comfortable going without condoms in this circumstance, considering that he and his wife have been going without condoms, presumably for years and years and years. You don't say how long they've been together, but presumably for a long time. And he's never infected her. So I think the odds of him suddenly infecting her and then her passing that infection on to you are small. Likelier, if you have other partners, if she has other partners, that you're going to get some other strain of that virus from someone else. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 31-year-old cisgendered female bisexual living out in the Southeast, and I'm calling with a question regarding good judgment. I ended a five-year-long relationship three and a half months ago. I haven't been dating at all. That relationship was intermittently abusive and I wanted to take some time just to really reflect and heal. I don't have any intention of getting in a serious relationship anytime soon, but I've been somewhat of a serial monogamist and I think it's important that I see what's out there before committing myself to anybody else. So I recently got on some dating apps and a couple of things have been coming to mind as I'm thinking about seeing new people. Um, I'm bipolar type two. I've never had to disclose that to anyone before. I was diagnosed um, with my, while I was with my last partner. I'm very organized with my medication regimen. I have uh, individual AM and, and PM pill pockets that I put by my bed since it's so important for my treatment regimen and it would feel dishonest to hide that if somebody were to sleep over. I've also had a good bit of trauma surrounding my body as a child and intermittently throughout my adult life. And though it hasn't come up in a long time during sex, I am concerned that it might with new partners. And I'm wondering at what point is it good judgment to disclose some, but also hold back on some of the more intimate details that could be really overwhelming for some people. My life has not been easy and there are some details that I think would be quite hard for a new partner to carry. Joining me to help tackle this question, cartoonist Ellen Forney is the New York Times bestselling author of Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo, and Me. She also wrote and illustrated Rock Steady, Brilliant Advice for My Bipolar Life, a self-help handbook on maintaining stability with a mood disorder. She also does mental health coaching at rocksteadycoach.com. Hey, Ellen, welcome back to the show. So happy to be here, Dan. So people are always asking me like how long you should wait before getting into a new relationship. People want to be told some magic number of weeks or months. Is it generally a good idea for a bipolar person, whatever your weeks or months are that you think you need to wait to wait a little bit longer to take a little bit more time than someone who isn't bipolar? Well, it's so individual. I mean, I think that that's probably the bottom line that that you often come to. It de it depends on it depends on your sense of boundaries and what it is that you're comfortable with. What kind of disclosure is it, and what do you want from this person? Maybe you want to tell right away because you just want to vet them. Are they going to freak out? And so if they freak out now, in, in maybe in what way do they freak <laughs> out, right? But, but I think that, I think for the most part, waiting until you're comfortable, uh, waiting until you feel safe, waiting until you trust the person a bit mm -hmm. 
is a is a good idea. So how long that would be, you know, it, it really varies. And it would depend on you. It would depend on that other person. It would depend on, you know, that feeling of trust that can come pretty quickly in some new relationships and others, you know, that's a bit of a dance. It takes a little bit more time. The caller is concerned about demonstrating good judgment around when and how to roll this fact out about herself. And what I think about listening to the call is the idea of like, what's a premature burden? You know, if you're, you're on the first date and if you dump a lot of really heavy emotional stuff on the person on that first date, those may be burdens that your partner would be willing to bear and would be ready for, you know, three months, six months into a relationship when, you know, you're really bonding with somebody. And part of that bonding is like, I'm going to help you carry your load. But like the first date, the first couple of weeks, they're not there to help you carry your load and you're not there to carry theirs. So I think it helps for everybody, not just people with bipolar. It helps everybody to think about what burden is premature. When can I roll this out? And in that rolling out, you demonstrate good judgment. Right. Well, I mean, a a couple of things with that, that it's okay to leave some things private for a period of time. I mean, it doesn't make sense to dump out, you know, like everything like, and I like Don Henley songs and I, you know, like, and I have this, you know, like something that this is something that I feel shame about. And this is something that I feel is just weird. And, you know, like I sleep with a stuffed animal and, you know, it's, it's okay to keep things private for whatever period of time you need really and to have and to demonstrate that you have filters even in a long-term relationship right. where you know everything about each other there are times when it's like you know what i'm gonna wait till tomorrow to raise this or talk about it because right, right now is bad so demonstrating right. early on right. that you have filters and right. good sense and and and, and good judgment uh, is so right. important and this could be one of the ways you demonstrate that but you know, having bipolar, nothing to be ashamed of. Being on medication, nothing to be ashamed of. Clearly, I think from the caller's question, it seems like she has her meds arrayed on the nightstand. So they're there Mm -hmm. visually as a reminder to take the meds, organized. And so if she begins dating someone, if she wants to roll this out slowly and demonstrate she has a filter? Does she need to hide her meds? So this actually ties in a little bit with the way that you phrased the last question, which is sharing this burden. Mm -hmm. Like, do they have to share this burden? Which is putting a judgment on what it is that she's dealing with and immediately suggesting that she's giving the other person responsibility here. And it doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't, I think some of it, one thing that I would wanna ask is what does bipolar mean to you? What do you think this is that you're sharing? Are you sharing, do you feel like you're sharing that you are broken and stained and you're, you're horrible person, then, then I would encourage you to maybe think about it differently because you're not broken and you don't need to be fixed and you're learning how to manage the condition that you have going on. I mean, she's, she's taking care of things. I mean, she just out said that she left an abusive relationship. Congratulations. You know, that's awesome. That's really strong. You're taking care, taking personal care of your bipolar and, you know, like responsibly in an organized way, she says, taking her meds. And that's really strong and that's very independent. So I think, I think that her way of disclosing might actually, like when she's comfortable, one of the things that I would suggest would be 
for her to, to share. You know, I have bipolar. I'm taking care of it. I'm on medications or I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with it. So I'm, you know, I just want you to I'm know. I'm shouldering the burden myself. I, yeah. I mean, but I, I really, I think even thinking of it as a burden is... Stigmatizing? Is, not necessarily helpful. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we aim to be but, helpful around here, so know, if that's not helpful. <laughs> withdrawn. You know, like it, like it's it, like a, like a weight, but rather, let's say, uh, let's say a, a puzzle. You know, mm-hmm. like I would, I would say. So I have bipolar. You can tell this is, you know, marbles is a memoir. And I would say, for example, that I take better care of myself now because of my bipolar, that I have that extra motivation to take care of myself, that I sleep better and I eat better and feel differently about my exercising and my routine and how important it is to, you know, like have that routine, that, that it actually has worked for me in that way. And that I've been able to have a certain compassion for other people who are going through tough stuff. So she might not feel so that. I can, wait, right wait, wait! Now, I can't, you know? I can't call it a burden, but you can call it tough stuff. Yeah. What's the well, difference? It's semantic. Okay, so it's the difference between saying something is hard and something is challenging, right? I mean, like hard seems like you're up against a wall, mm. and something that's challenging, if you see it that way, you can rise you to can it. Can think of it as a well, how do I figure this out? Okay. Rather than I'm up against the wall, how do I figure out? Okay. Mm. Let's talk about your routines because that's a lot of what Rocksteady is about. Um, And it's a terrific, brilliant advice for my bipolar life, a self-help handbook. I've given Rocksteady to people I know with mood disorders and they found it so helpful. And Rocksteady is about those routines. It's not just about find the meds, get on the meds. It's about so much else. Right. Yeah, I actually have an acronym for it because you have to have an acronym for everything. And it's SMEDMERTS, which is... Rolls off the tongue. Sleep. It does well. Well, it does once you say it a lot. Okay, so... uh, And it sounds a little bit Yiddish, which I like, right? Mm -hmm. SMEDMERTS. Sleep, meds, eat, doctor, or therapy, mindfulness, SMED, uh, exercise, routine, coping tools, and a solid support system. And all of those things are interrelated and they're all really important. So you can see meds is just one. Mm-hmm. Meds is just one part of that. And even doctor slash therapy is only one part of that. It, it, like any, any of those pieces, like getting too far out of balance is, is, going, to, is going to set everything else. And in Rocksteady, you anthropomorphize uh, Smedmerts as this adorable little I don't know, alien? Uh, well, it's a little snaggletooth monster doing jazz hands. <laughs> hey, it's basically like, huh, you know, I, actually I gave that sticker to my, to my doctor, my GP, and she said that she keeps it by her computer to remember not to take everything so seriously. And I, I think that that's really, that's really key. And, and you know what I think is one of the great things about this Spedmert's sort of character, that little snaggletoothed imp, is it <laughs> like it, it actually like makes all these things that you have to do and handle seem doable and not threatening and not, I'm going to say the word again, the B word, not a burden. Like all of these <laughs> things, you get them together, you know, sleep, eating, 
therapy, everything that's that makes up Smedmerts, that bringing these all together, having them in your life is going to be a, a joy, not more than you can handle, not everything you have to juggle. It's this right. wonderful sort of character presence, right? adorable, right. approachable right. and um, comforting. And doable. That's one of the things. So we were talking be before about the difference between coaching, which is what I do, and therapy. And so a, a therapist gets into particular deep issues like deeply. And I'm much more action oriented, like skills and action and how are we going to get this done? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, a lot of people know that they need to sleep and that they need to sleep well. But it's really much more difficult to figure out how, you know, to, to really understand why and then how. And that's why I have here again, rock steady to a whole chapter on insomnia. Is it going to sleep? Is it winding down? That's a problem. Is it waking up in the middle of the night? That's my own issue. Is it uh, waking up? Is it you just your general habits and and kind of breaking those down and addressing them really specifically. There's some things that get in our way and sometimes it's hard to know what they are. Let's circle back to the caller's uh, primary concern. They're going to get out there. They're going to start dating. Is that something you would put on your profile on an app? Is that something you would treat as a sorting hat and share with somebody, you know, on the first date or very early on to, you know, to gauge their reaction? And we've all been there. Like you tell somebody something one thing about you, their reaction tells you almost everything you need to know about them, including if they have a, you know, an ignorant but not malicious misinformed reaction that maybe you can talk to them and like work through it. You don't have to run screaming if somebody doesn't have the reaction that you would ideally hope that they would have. But is this something you could lead with, put on a dating app, toss out on a first date? Well, you know, it really goes back to your personal comfort. If you want to throw it out there, what you're doing, like know what you're doing, what you're doing is vetting people. You know, how are they going to react to that? And she sounds like she's still feeling very vulnerable or somewhat vulnerable about it. And so I think that she doesn't, that she should know that she doesn't need to put it out there and that she doesn't need to put it out there before she's ready. And that's okay. If, if someone, if someone comes back after, let's say she's been dating someone for three months, let's say, I don't know. I picked that out of nowhere. Three months, five months. I don't know. Uh, make it more extreme five months and says, you know what, you know, at taking the time and space, like, you know what, I think that it's really time that, um, sh that this person knows this about me, what, what my, what my struggle is, this particular, I mean, it sounds like she's, she has a lot of different things that she's dealing with to really be able to plan. Okay. Where do I feel safe? And you know, like, I think that, you know, like maybe it's on a walk so that we don't have to be, you know, like just staring into, it. you know, like really picturing what, it, and to say, you know, like, I really want to know I'm bipolar. I'm taking, you know, that the same line, you know, like I'm taking care of it. I just want you to know if, if they, if they're like, whoa, why didn't you tell me before? You just say, well, I wasn't ready yet. Maybe that's a long way around saying, mm -hmm. you know, you know, if you have the time to do that, it's somebody else, if they're worth their salt, you know, they would be okay with you waiting. They, they should be, under, they should be able to understand. 
why you would wait. And in some ways, you know, if you thought about someone disclosing that to you and you didn't have bipolar, I would be grateful that they let me get to know them. I would be grateful that they didn't, you know, I guess I'm all over the place on this. You could put it on the app. You could say it on the first date. I would be Mm -hmm. grateful if it was, if I was dating someone who was bipolar, that they didn't, I don't want to say burden. They didn't put that on me. They didn't share that with me before I was like invested a little bit. And I would have felt like it would have given them time to demonstrate that they were handling it, that they were rising to the challenge and taking care of themselves. And so disclosing that they had bipolar to me didn't mean then I need you to rush in and take care of me. I'm fine. As you have seen, now, you know, this part of who I am that I'm handling and it's fine, but now I feel like I can share that with you. I would, if I was on the receiving end of that, I would feel honored and I would feel like I had earned that trust. So I guess my, my advice to the caller would be to, 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 to wait. We've been all over the place, but maybe to wait. She asked specifically if she needed to hide her meds. Oh, right, right. And so, so to address that, it isn't, it isn't lying or hiding to put them away. There again, like, you know, if, there's, if you have like the world's biggest dildo and you don't want your partner to really know that right away, you know, or it's weird, you know, then it's okay to put it away. You know, if she really wants to have it on her night table because that's how she remembers it, awesome. Maybe put it in a box, you know. Or or if you have the world's biggest dildo, hide it inside the world's biggest dildo. Just hollow it out and tuck all your meds in there. <laughs> well, there you go. Good tip. <laughs> um, two last quick things. It occurs to me always at this stage of a, a conversation like this that I should have opened with, Ellen Forney, Bipolar 101. What is bipolar? If there's somebody out there listening right now who's... 16 years old or or 26 years old and hasn't really heard about this or doesn't know anything about it, maybe he's heard the term, but doesn't know what it is, as quickly as you can, what is it? So it is a mood disorder where there's a couple different kinds. There's bipolar one, where there's an extreme mania, that there's episodes that cycle. So there's high, high, high energy, and then there's depression that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, low, low, low uh, depression, and then and then periods of time in the middle. It, it, it's really uh, not up and down all the time. And then bipolar two is when there is uh, it's called hypomania, so it's a really mild mania and depression. And you know, Dan, I do have to add uh, amongst all of this excellent advice that. There is one particular time that I think of when I was only with, it was a guy who uh, I was really into and it was only a couple days and we were in the hotel room and I had my meds in my hand and I, he saw me and I totally blurted out, I'm bipolar. It was totally awkward. It was totally ridiculous and totally didn't feel safe. And he's my partner now and we've been together for 13 years. So it's okay to mess up. It's, it's okay to, to risk and put yourself out there. It's, it's likely not going to be the end of the world. That's beautiful. Um, so you're starting a newsletter. Where can people find that? Where can they sign up in advance for your new newsletter? That's not doesn't yet exist, but it's coming. Right, right, right. Um, so they can just go to my coaching website, which is rocksteadycoach.com and press the join my mailing list button and um and then they'll be on board will we get some smed merts in the newsletter 
you're going to get comics for sure. Your comics are amazing. And as anyone who lives in Seattle knows, there's uh, light rail stations here, our subway, with giant Ellen Forney drawings over them. You're, a, you're an institution here in Seattle and a real hero uh, all over the world to, to people with bipolar. The work you've done that made it uh, understandable, approachable, unpacked it graphically. I just, I just think you do such, such brilliant work. And I'm going to head over to Rocksteady Coach and um, subscribe to your new newsletter because I want Smedmerts in my email inbox too. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan. It's an honor. Thank you for coming on. Hey, Dan. I am just having a conversation with my boyfriend and realized that I really should call and ask you a question. This all sort of stemmed, this question stemmed from a recent thing that happened while we were having sex. I accidentally peed on him and not like, not like a little bit of pee. It was like a full evacuation of my bladder. And I was really embarrassed and we were laughing and we showered and all of that. But then after the fact, he was like, you kind of liked it. And I swear to God, this is not a joke. This is real life. And then we started having more conversations and it turns out he's like kind of turned on by the idea of me peeing on him and even the idea of me pooping on him. And my problem with this is that I'm a giggler and this is not something that turns me on. And I think it's really cool to do something for him, even if it doesn't turn me on. I love to turn him on, but like I'm a giggler and I don't know how to get through something like that without like laughing, you know, and, and taking us completely out of the moment. It's hard for me to even envision that happening. I got to say, I didn't see that one coming. My boyfriend asked me to poop on him. And the problem is dot, dot, dot. I'm a giggler. <laughs> see, for me, the problem would be that I don't really want to take a shit on anyone. A piss on someone that's different. You know, urine is for the most part, sterile-ish. Sterile's a binary, something sterile or it's not sterile. We used to think urine was sterile. Now we know it ain't necessarily so, but yeah, it's not that bad for you. And we've had a couple of beers and it's not first thing in the morning and you didn't have asparagus for lunch. It's just so much hot and symbolically charged, erotically charged water. So I would make a distinction between peeing on your boyfriend uh, on purpose or by accident and, you know, pooping on your boyfriend. I think poop is a lot to ask of someone who isn't turned on by feces. And it's wonderful that you want to do for your boyfriend the things that he wants done for and to him. GGG is wonderful, but, you know, poop's always been on my list of a, a fetish to far, but I'm not going to tell you, you shouldn't. And that wasn't even your question. Your question was how to conquer the giggles in a moment like that. And my advice would be not to fight them, to lean in to the giggles. Sex can sometimes be silly and you should be able to laugh at the absurdity or ridiculous of it. And as somebody who suffers from the giggles myself at times, you know that attempting to bottle it up just makes it worse. Trying not to giggle in a moment or laugh in a moment where you want to giggle or laugh just makes it worse. And so allowing yourself to giggle, maybe then you'll move through the giggles 
and be able to find a more kind of focused place of, you know, erotic tension and concentration that's a little sexier for him and you. But if part of the reason your boyfriend is interested in exploring, at the very least getting peed on, is the degradation or humiliation, your laughter at that moment, you laughing at your boyfriend, you know, as he lays down in the tub and you squat over him trying to take a pee, and that's all the mental images I'm going to torture myself with right now. If you laugh at him, that may make him feel more humiliated, more degraded, rather than pulling you both out of the moment, living honestly in that moment where you feel not, you know, hopefully not ridiculous yourself, but like you've been asked to do a ridiculous slash sexy slash disgusting thing and you're laughing both with and at your boyfriend at that moment, that may fuel the intensity for him. That may actually make it more of a turn on. So the giggles that you're worried about and self-conscious about, talk with your boyfriend. It may be, you know, perhaps in advance he would think it wouldn't be sexy, but in the moment, if that's what you're feeling in the moment, it may wind up working for him. So yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> go for number one. Uh, I'm sort of poop phobic myself. I would urge you not to go for number two, but if you do go for number two, I'm not going to knock the turd out of your hands. Just, yeah, don't, don't call with an update if you uh, wind up giving him everything he asked for. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Juji Mimi Mama tweets, the childless woman in episode 822 whose boyfriend has a kid needs to consider her legal rights. Even if they form a family unit, she has no legal parental rights without adoption. If he dies, she could lose the child she thought was hers. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. That is great advice. Second and third parent adoptions are expensive, but they're a really good idea. We don't like to think about them when we're in a relationship, a new relationship, a newly committed relationship, when there are kids involved because you'll only ever really need to exercise your rights as a legal parent if the relationship should end or if there's a death and no one wants to think about that. But we should, especially when kids who depend on us are involved. Ona Nelson tweets, potential hookup asks about STIs, green flag. Asks about STIs and abortion, major green flag. Asks only about abortion, red flag. Sounds like that caller is more scared of child support payments than maternal mortality, and he'll complain the condom isn't comfy. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I think child support payments are a perfectly reasonable thing for men to be scared of. If there were better enforcement, if fewer guys got away with being deadbeat dads, maybe more men would be afraid of them and more likely than not to complain about the condom not being comfy. And finally, Gia Rose tweets at Fake Dan Savage. I wish you would get on at TikTok underscore US because there's a whole lot of bad, bad dudes on there giving horrible relationship advice. Well, there have always been bad, bad dudes out there giving terrible relationship advice. Billy fucking Graham has been writing a syndicated advice column for longer than the printing press has existed. But rest assured, I am about to get on TikTok literally any day now. The tech-savvy at-risk youth have been pushing me to get on TikTok, but it was your tweet, Gia Rose, that pushed me over the top. I mean, wherever there are bad dudes giving shitty relationship advice, 
I need to be there. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who tweeted or posted to your other social media, including your TikToks about the Lovecast this week. We really appreciate it. And now, listener response calls. This is a response to the caller in episode 823 that was looking for some advice on starting anal. Dan, I've been listening to you and reading your columns for many, many years, and I don't think that I have ever heard you give the advice to, instead of bending over, to lie on your back. So the way I think about it is that, you know, you're trying to shove a, a hard stick into a, a curved pole. And if you're lying down, it's it's a lot more accommodating. I used to be somebody who absolutely hated anal and I would refuse it. But once we started this way, I, I have the greatest orgasms of my entire life. There's plenty of room to uh, in this position to, you know, get a vibrator and, and have some fun. Um, so, yeah, maybe try giving it a go on your back. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. This call is in response to the gay man who had sex with the pre-op trans man and now wants to have sex with a woman. I'm a cis woman who has sex with both women and men, including by men. And while I really respect the caller's discomfort in disclosing that he's gay, him having sex with a woman does have different implications for her in terms of risk. As you've mentioned many times, Dan, monkeypox is being spread primarily between men who have sex with men. And as another example, even though it might be an archaic rule, in the past I've had to hold off on donating blood while dating by men. So while I think the caller doesn't need to disclose that he's only been with men, please consider maybe identifying yourself as bi for this encounter, which sounds accurate in terms of your attraction, just so that your partner understands the scope of your sexual activity and can consent. Hey, Dan. Bi trans guy here calling in response to the older gay gentleman from episode 823 who wants to have penetrative sex with his trans partner but is having some difficulties. I have two possible ideas for him. First, maybe try performing penetrative vaginal sex on your partner with a toy while touching yourself or having your partner touch or use a toy on you, or take turns doing this. Second, if your partner would be willing, have him ride your dick with you on the bottom. Let him take the lead as far as foreplay, getting you worked up, etc., and once you're hard, he gets on your dick. Another variation on this could be him riding you, but with you blindfolded first. With a blindfold, when it comes time to the actual penetration, it may help you to be less in your head and to just focus on the pleasurable sensations of the moment. Good luck and have fun. You guys can do this. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? You can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us and leave us a message at 206-302-2064. It's been a busy year for the tech-savvy at-risk youth. They got on Twitter. You can follow them at Lovecast, T-S-A-R-Y. They also set up my new website, savage.love, home for all things Dan Savage, Savage Lovecast, and Savage Love. You can listen to new episodes of the Lovecast at savage.love and subscribe to the Magnum Lovecast and gift subscriptions to the Magnum Lovecast. The site is also home of my column, Savage Love, and there's merch at savage.love too. I'm currently sipping tea from my GGG mug as I record this. Head on over to savage.love, check it all out, and 
while you're on the internet, also head on over to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for everything you need to know about getting your short porn film five minutes or less. Doesn't have to be graphic, doesn't have to be pornographic, can also be erotica. Just has to be five minutes or less. Everything you need to know about getting your film in the Hump Film Festival at humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Ellen Fournay on Twitter at Ellen underscore Fournay, F-O-R-N-E-Y. And of course, follow the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth on Twitter at Lovecast, T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for downloading.